Today we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. My idea for this show was to invite guests and get the conversation started, to take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. And we encourage our listeners to look within themselves to take decisive action to make a positive difference. Hello and welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. I am your host, Bill Myers. And today our topic is racism and immigration. Uh, as you know, we have been doing a deep dive um, since I started this podcast, uh, taking a look at racism in America in, from various vantage points and various perspectives. And I was fascinated um, and very intrigued by the idea of racism and immigration. I have not heard those two things directly linked, but indirectly um, they seem to be very linked. And so I wanted to address that with someone who could shed some light on that topic. And uh, I am thrilled to have as our guest today, Congressman Andre Carson, who represents the great state of Indiana. And uh, he will be with us in just a short while. Uh, again, I am grateful uh, to his staff and his team for working this out for me. So I want to give a shout out to Copeland and Shayla. These are the folks that uh, handle his schedule and keep him on time. So uh, I'm grateful to them. And I would like to start with the description of today's show. So is America's immigration policy just another manifestation of racism? Over the past four years, there have been a number of aggressive actions taken, such as building the wall, ice raids, border separation of families, and the caging of children. In fact, the word immigration has become synonymous with people of color. Uh, in order to get a context uh, for this immigration discussion, <laughs> excuse me, I would like to uh, take a look, as I do oftentimes when we jump into these topics, I want to take you on the journey with me as we sort of trace the history, the actual history. So I, I stick pretty close to the script on these things because I do not feel comfortable just sort of waxing and waning. Immigration is not my expertise. However, I thought it would be a good opportunity for us all to become familiar with the actual laws and policies from the beginning of this nation's history. Um, so I would like to uh, share with you this U.S. immigration timeline, which was provided by uh, the History Channel. And so I am working under the assumption that uh, it is historically accurate. So just bear with me. Uh, but it's some very interesting information uh, in the evolution of America. So here we go. The U.S. immigration timeline. Attitudes and laws around U.S. immigration 
have vacillated between welcoming and restrictive, being welcoming or restrictive since the country's beginning. The United States has long been considered a nation of immigrants. Attitudes towards new immigrants by those who came before have vacillated between welcoming and exclusionary over the years. Thousands of years before Europeans began crossing the vast Atlantic by ship and settling in mass, the first immigrants arrived in North America and the land that would later become the United States. They were Native American ancestors who crossed a narrow spit of land connecting Asia to North America some 20,000 years ago during the last ice age. By the early 1600s, communities of European immigrants dotted the Eastern seaboard, including the Spanish in Florida, the British in England, in New England, and Virginia, the Dutch in New York, and the Swedes in Delaware. Some, including the Pilgrims and Puritans, came for religious freedom. Many sought greater economic opportunities. Still others, including hundreds of thousands of enslaved Africans, arrived in America against their will. Below are the events that have shaped the turbulent history of immigration in the United States since its birth. White people of good character granted citizenship. January 1776, Thomas Paine publishes a pamphlet, Common Sense, that argues for American independence. Most colonists consider themselves Brightons, but Paine makes the case for a new American. Europe, and not England, is the parent country of America. This new world hath been the asylum for the persecuted lovers of civil and religious liberty from every part of Europe, he writes. March 1790, Congress passes the first law about who should be granted U.S. citizenship. The Naturalization Act of 1790 allows any free white person of good character who has been living in the United States for two years or longer to apply for citizenship. Without citizenship, non-white residents are denied basic constitutional protections, including the right to vote, own property, or testify in court. August 1790, the first U.S. census takes place. The English are the largest ethnic group among the 3.9 million people counted, though nearly one in five Americans are of African heritage. Now, a sidebar, this means that approximately 780,000 slaves who were not considered as a person, but rather as property, according to the Constitution. Irish immigrant wave, 1815. Peace is reestablished between the United States and Britain after the War of 1812. Immigration from Western Europe turns from a trickle into a gush, which causes a shift in the demographics of the United States. 
This first major wave of immigration lasts until the Civil War. Between 1820 um, and 1860, the Irish, many of them Catholic, account for an estimated one-third of all immigrants to the United States. Some five million German immigrants also come to the U.S., many of them making their way to the Midwest to buy farms or settle in cities including Milwaukee, St. Louis, and Cincinnati. 1819, many of newcomers arrive sick or dying from their long journey across the Atlantic in cramped conditions. The immigrants overwhelm major port cities, including New York, Boston, Philadelphia, and Charleston. In response, the United States passes the Steerage Act of 1819, requiring better conditions on ships arriving to the country. The act also calls for ship captains to submit demographic information on passengers, creating the first federal records on the ethnic composition of immigrants to the United States. 1849, America's first anti-immigrant political party, the Know Nothing Party, forms as a backlash to the increasing number of German and Irish immigrants settling in the United States. 1875, following the Civil War, some states passed their own immigra immigration laws. In 1875, the Supreme Court declares that it's the responsibility of the federal government to make and enforce immigration laws. Chinese Exclusion Act, 1880. As America begins a rapid period of industrialization and urbanization, a second immigration boom begins. Between 1880 and 1920, more than 20 million immigrants arrive. The majority are from Southern, Eastern, and Central Europe, including 4 million Italians and 2 million Jews. Many of them settle in major cities in the U.S. and work in factories. 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act passes, which bars Chinese immigrants from entering the U.S. beginning in the 1850s. A steady flow of Chinese workers had, had immigrated to America. They worked primarily in the gold mines and garment factories, built railroads, and took agricultural jobs. Anti-Chinese sentiment grew as Chinese laborers became successful in America. Although Chinese immigrants make up a small fraction of, of less than 1% of the United States population, white workers blame them for low wages. The 1882 Act is the first in American history to place broad restrictions on certain immigrant groups. 1891. The Immigration Act of 1891 further excludes who can enter the United States, barring the immigration of polygamists, people convicted of certain crimes, and the sick or diseased. The Act also created a Federal Office of Immigration to coordinate immigration enforcement and a Corps of Immigration Inspectors stationed at principal ports of entry. Ellis Island opens January 1892. 
Ellis Island, the United States' first immigration station, opens in New York Harbor. The first immigrant processed is Annie Moore, a teenager from County Cork in Ireland. More than 12 million immigrants would enter the United States through Ellis Island between 1892 and 1954. 1907, U.S. immigration peaks with 1.3 million people entering the country through Ellis Island alone. February 1907, amid prejudices in California that an influx of Japanese workers would cost white workers farming jobs and depress wages, the United States and Japan signed the Gentlemen's Agreement. Japan agrees to limit Japanese emigration to the United States to certain categories of business and professional men. In return, President Theodore Roosevelt urges San Francisco to end the segregation of Japanese students from white students in San Francisco schools. 1910, an estimated three quarters of New York City's population consists of new immigrants and first generation Americans. 1917, xenophobia reaches new highs on the eve of American involvement in World War I. The Immigration Act of 1917 establishes a literacy requirement for immigrants entering the country and halts immigration from most Asian countries. May 1924, the Immigration Act of 1924 limits the number of immigrants allowed into the United States yearly through nationality quotas. Under the new quota system, the United States issues immigration visas to 2% of the total number of people of each nationality in the United States at the 1890 census. The law favors immigration from Northern and Western Europe countries. Just three countries, Great Britain, Ireland, and Germany account for 70% of all available visas. Immigration from Southern, Central, and Eastern Europe was limited. The act completely excludes immigrants from Asia, aside from the Philippines, then which was an American colony. 1924, in the wake of the numerical limits established by the 1924 law, illegal immigration to the United States increases. The U.S. Border Patrol established to crack down on illegal immigrants crossing the Mexican and Canadian borders into the United States. Many of these early border crossers were Chinese and other Asian immigrants who had been barred from entering legally. 1942, labor shortages during World War II prompt the United States and Mexico to form the Bracero Program which allows Mexican agricultural workers to enter the United States temporarily. The program lasts until 1964. 1948, the United States passes the nation's first refugee and resettlement law to deal with the influx of Europeans seeking permanent residence in the United States after World War II. 1952, the McLaren-Walter Act formally ends the exclusion of Asian immigrants to the United States. 1956 through 1957, the United States admits roughly 38,000 immigrants from Hungary after a failed uprising against the Soviets. 
They were among the first Cold War refugees. The United States would admit over 3 million refugees during the Cold War. 1960 through 1962, roughly 14,000 unaccompanied children flee Fidel Castro's Cuba and come to the United States as part of a secret anti-communism program called Operation Peter Pan. In 1965, the Immigration and Nationality Act overhauls the American immigration system. The act ends the national origin quotas enacted in the 1920s, which favored some racial and ethnic groups over others. The quota system is replaced with a seven-category preference system, emphasizing family reunification and skilled immigrants. Upon signing the new bill, President Lyndon B. Johnson called the old immigration system un-American and said the new bill would correct a cruel and enduring wrong in the conduct of the American nation. Over the next five years, immigration from war-torn regions of Asia, including Vietnam and Cambodia, would more than quadruple. Family reunification became a driving force in U.S. immigration. And so, as we can see here, I'm going to move closer to, to our current time here. So we have Amnesty to Illegal Immigrants. In 1986, President Ronald Reagan signs into law the Simpson-Mazzoli Act, which grants amnesty to more than 3 million immigrants living illegally in the United States. 2001, U.S. Senators Dick Durbin and Orrin Hatch proposed the first development, Relief and Education and Alien Minors Dream Act, which would provide a pathway to legal status for dreamers, undocumented immigrants brought to the United States illegally by their parents as children. The bill and subsequent iterations of it don't pass. In 2012, President Barack Obama signs Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, which temporarily shields some dreamers from deportation, but doesn't provide a path for citizenship. 2017, President Donald Trump issues two executive orders, both titled Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States, aimed at curtailing travel and immigration from six majority Muslim countries, Chad, Iran, Libya, Syria, Yemen, and Somalia, as well as North Korea and Venezuela. Both of these travel bans are challenged in the state and federal courts. In April of 2018, the travel restriction of Chad are lifted. In, t- in June 2018, the Supreme Court upholds a third version of the ban on the remaining seven countries. It's just very interesting to note that at every turn, it seems that our immigration policies in the United States seem to definitely bias towards people of color. Hence, our program today is race, racism and immigration in a nation of immigrants. You are listening to Bill Myers Inspires, and when we come back from this first break, I will have, I will be joined by Congressman Andre Carson. Thank you for being with us today, and I'm sorry about that long-winded piece, but I think it's absolutely necessary for us to get a, uh, a, 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 an overview of the history of how we have handled immigration and to understand its biases. We'll be back in just one moment. 
Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. Are you a subject matter expert? Are you here to share your expertise with an audience waiting to hear from you in only the way you can deliver? Are you ready to have your voice amplified across the airwaves? Inspire Choices Network has a global radio platform streaming to millions of people across the world. Professionally produced and supported by an accomplished team every step of the way, you can broadcast from anywhere in the world knowing your voice matters and we ensure it is delivered with ease and efficiency. Eager to hear your message, the world awaits. Contact us today to become an Inspired Choices Network radio host. Email becomeahost at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday. 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. We're back, and you're listening to Bill Myers Inspires, and today our topic is racism and immigration. And my guest today is Congressman Andre Carson, so I'm going to go into and share with you a bit of his bio right now. So if you will indulge me, it's quite impressive body of work. So here we go. Congressman Andre D. Carson, now in his sixth full term in the United States House of Representatives, has established himself as an influential leader and respected public servant fighting for good paying jobs, economic growth, and safer communities for Indiana's working families. Congressman Carson, consistently fights for the middle class, securing hundreds of millions for investments in public safety, education, infrastructure, and the creation and protection of thousands of good-paying jobs. Additionally, the congressman has made accessibility a priority for his office, holding regular meetings around Indianapolis and hosting Congress on Your Corner events to ensure constituents have easy access to the resources and information they need. Since being elected to Congress, Congressman Carson has joined a number of caucuses, coalitions, and task force, task forces, there's a tongue twister, that focus on some of the issues that he considers to be top priorities in the 7th District 
and around the country. I see you. <laughs> Welcome, Andre Carson, Congressman. What an honor. What an honor. What it, an honor. I, if you would just give me just a second, because I'm going to tell the rest of your story real quick. In Washington, Congressman Carson fought to pass the historic health care reform law, which provides families and businesses with better health insurance options and makes health care more affordable and accessible for tens of millions of Americans. As a former member of the House Financial Services Committee, he has also helped pass Wall Street reform, which protects consumers by ending government bailouts and the, the risky lending practices that almost destroyed our economy. I'm going to stop right there. I've got another page or so, but I, I know that your time is precious and valuable, and I want to make the most of that. So again, welcome to you, Congressman Andre Carson. Thank you, uh, Brother Bill. Uh, I, I just want to say, first of all, let, let, let me congratulate you on your very brilliant career, you know, uh, you, you've, you've accomplished so much. Um, you make Hoosiers very proud. And I want to thank you for creating this podcast, I think, to aid in very important dialogues we're having in our state and across the country and around the world, quite frankly. Um, it's, it's plain to see that our country is hurting right now. And there is so much pain and grief not only from the COVID-19 pandemic, but from the pain of racism and bigotry in our country. And I don't think we can treat issues like COVID-19 or even racism or immigration as totally separate issues. They're all connected, whether you're talking about who is dying from COVID-19 at higher rates or who is being killed by the police, uh, who is being denied access to our country and the American dream, it all goes back to the original sins of racism and bigotry. And thankfully, there are many people working tirelessly to heal our society from these evils, and they've, they've helped make progress. So I want to thank you, sir, for inviting some of those folks on your program, and I'm honored to be in their company. And I hope my efforts are making a difference to bring about some healing and bridge divides. Absolutely. Well, I thank you so much. That that's very generous of you, and um, and uh, I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, sometimes we we do our thing, and and we just wonder if people are noticing sometimes. So I do very much appreciate that. Um, so we are talking about racism and immigration. Oftentimes, I have uh, noticed that uh, you know we we discuss the immigration policies, and then we discuss racism. And before you came on, I took our, our listening audience through the history of immigration policies in, in uh, the United States from the beginning and sort of brought it up. And the one thing that seems to be very consistent is the bias uh, negatively towards people of color. Um, and that's why I wanted to walk the audience through this, because when I get curious about these things, I'm a research hound. So I like to, instead of posing as an authority. No, let's share this information together so that you can hear and see exactly what I'm looking at and then perhaps see where the dialogue and where the questions really lay. So, um, and it's pretty intense. Um, even more recently, um, as far as an immigration issue that I know would have personally affects you. And that is, 
I know that you are uh, of the Muslim, you know, you are Muslim and uh, the uh, Muslim ban that was, you know, put in place uh, soon after the occupant, the current occupant of the White House took hold. I mean, how do you, how, how did that make you feel? And, and where is the fairness and, and where is the, the logic in that? Because it just seems, again, to be yet another iteration of racism, period, the end. No, uh, you know, that's, that's a very important question, you know, as, 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 as a Muslim and as a black man, quite frankly, I've experienced uh, racism and Islamophobia uh, as as well as racial profiling by the police. Um, at the age of 17, uh, I was arrested, trying to stay out of trouble. I was at a mosque and I was arrested. And uh, even though the charges were dropped, it wasn't my first encounter with law enforcement mm-hmm. uh, and being put on a car, uh, called out of my name, but it was the first time I was actually you know, arrested. I was a juvenile at the time, mm-hmm. but I later became a law enforcement officer. And, you know, first let me say, I, I, I firmly believe that these men and women play important roles in our community. Uh, many of them know things need to change and, and, and we're working to facilitate a dialogue between them and members of our community, stakeholders, advocates, uh, and so many other, uh, other folks. But also we know that there is in historical context that has to be taken into consideration given that our current iteration, at least in America of law enforcement comes from slave catchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, on, on this immigration question, you know, we've been working to lift up voices of immigrants and refugees. I strongly support programs like DACA and the importance of building a pathway for people to stay in our country and effectively become citizens. Mm-hmm. I also co-authored the, the No Ban Act, which effectively ends President Trump's harmful Muslim bans. And I'm very pleased that it passed the House this year. Even I'm even more pleased that President-elect Biden has promised to end these harmful and hateful bans. Yeah. I think there's so much, so much that has to be done. You know, since the beginning of his presidency, I don't have to tell you, uh, he's, tr- Trump has engaged in an all-out assault on immigrants and our immigrant traditions. His, his executive orders, they've effectively targeted legal immigrants, asylum seekers, refugees, and even some American citizens. I think that his policies have been immoral and un-American. You know, you, you can look at an immigrant community, Brother Bill, whether it's uh, an immigrant community from, from, from West Africa, East Africa, Mm-hmm. from the Middle East, from South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, uh, from Europe, from Latin America, from Mexico, from Colombia, from the Caribbean. And you have immigrant communities and folks from those communities coming to our country, starting businesses in six months, a year. Mm-hmm. And these are prosperous businesses. Right. And you know what? Some of them are putting Americans back to work. Right. I, I, we, we saw 22 million jobs lost in the past year. And a lot of folks were able to feed their families by working for small businesses that happened to be owned and operated by immigrants. 
Yeah. So he's very contradictory when he talks about making America great again, but ignoring the rich tradition of immigrants in our community. And certainly you wouldn't have an America without the contributions of the slaves. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and it's very interesting, too, because I was as I was sitting here sort of making some notes before the show, you know, it, it suddenly occurred to me that, you know, blacks in America, you know, have been deported in many ways to the America's mm. prison complex. Wow. A, a way of sort of nullifying, you know, you know what I mean? That that whole sort of, again, the, the same tradition of racism and s- slavery, you know, Jim Crow. Here we go. The prison complex. Yeah. And um and I just think that um, it's it's very distressing. I am hopeful. I, I must say that, but you know, above all, and why I'm hopeful is mostly because we can have these dialogues. Sure. If people aren't talking, uh, then nothing's going to you know. What I mean, <laughs> not, nothing's coming out. So um, I am grateful to to you being here today and. So, so what, wh- how are you being hopeful as far as moving forward? Again, I just ran through a whole litany of, of stuff before you joined, again, the history mm-hmm. of, of that. And so what types of, of actions and moves do you see uh, perhaps in the, the, the future, uh, perhaps with the new administration? Uh, certainly the composite is encouraging. The composite of, of the... Um, of the staff that, that is starting to, to be cast, you know, I, I'm encouraged by that because at least we know that there will be voices at the table uh, who understand and come from, you know, these communities. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I think um, in a very real sense, you're, you're, you're seeing a lot of diversity, which is encouraging. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that, beyond the symbol of diversity, we need a diversity of thought. We need folks who are in tune with the community, who recognize the prison industrial complex, mm-hmm. uh, the school to prison pipeline, its impacts on our society, the psychological impacts on our black youth. Uh, we need to look at ways in which we can modify and reform standardized testing and ways in which we can kind of liberate some of our educators who were stretched so thinly, quite mm-hmm. frankly, because of testing requirements. I've met with scores of educators, uh, superintendents, who say, you know what, something as basic as financial literacy. I know that's something you're a big advocate of uh, mm-hmm. for. Uh, they'd love to teach financial literacy in our schools, but a lot of our educators, quite frankly, are stretched thinly because of testing requirements. Mm-hmm. and. You know, we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurial genius in our in our in, in our young boys and girls. Many of them want to be artists. Many of them want to be entrepreneurs. Many of them want to be athletes. Uh, some of them become uh, unofficial street pharmaceutical reps. Right. Right. But there, 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 there's some there's some scientific genius working. There's some entrepreneurial genius working. Absolutely. Absolutely. But they just need the folks like like you and others who can who can hone that ingenuity in a way that's digestible. So uh, I've introduced and I will re- reintroduce, uh, God willing, the, our financial literacy bill. I've met with I've met with educators. I've met with bankers. I just had a discussion with uh, Andrew Yang about this very issue. Mm-hmm. He's encouraging us to not only just include credit unions and, 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 and traditional banking institutions, 
but to also include accountants, something I never thought about. Ah, yeah. Into, into this to, to, to really create a platform in our school systems where children can learn basic financial concepts. The objective isn't to make folks hedge fund managers. If it happens, it's all to the good. Right. But to teach basic financial concepts because we know that a lot of predatory institutions target our young folks when they go off into college. If they don't, they'll still target it. Uh, many of them because of mom, dad, big mama, whomever, they graduate from high school, leave high school, even college with debt. Right, right. So when it comes time to even start a business or purchase a home or uh, create some kind of financial vehicle for retirement, as we talk about the insolvency or impending insolvency of Social Security, um, they don't have the tools or they may have barriers to entry as it relates to credit, as it relates to obtaining a loan for a small business, getting seed money. And so those are some of the things that we want to talk about. But as it relates to the school to prison pipeline, I think it's important. The founding fathers were very complicated. Slaveholders, yes. Sexist, yes. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, indeed, <laughs> by setting up three separate but equal branches of government. And so you have a Congress and a judiciary, quite frankly, but you have a Congress that is there to act as a check on presidential excess. Mm -hmm. And so we want to hold President Biden accountable as well. We have an agenda as a Congressional Black Caucus, as a Congressional Hispanic Caucus, and some of the Progressive Caucus, and some of the other caucuses, in making sure that we see criminal justice and prison reform. Now, Trump, the Trump administration, they were with many of us on criminal justice reform because it's really a bipartisan issue. Uh, mm -hmm. When you talk about criminal justice reform, there were many Republicans uh, who were in sync with Democrats, quite frankly, because you're talking about saving taxpayer dollars when you don't have folks who uh, recidivate back into a life of crime. I introduced a bill called the Recidivism Reduction Act, mm -hmm. which allows people who receive benefits prior to incarceration uh, to get those same benefits once they're released. And what we found, Brother Bill, was that when people were released, um, the time that it took to wait for those benefits to kick back in, they were often lured or enticed to go back into a life of crime. And as a result, um, that's more money on taxpayer rolls that we have to pay for and another person, unfortunately, that we've lost to our prison industrial complex. And so ways in which we can create legislation that decriminalizes marijuana, we just passed that bill today. I voted for it a few hours ago. Uh, I think that's a big step. We can have a larger discussion about gateway drugs, but I think what, what sure. is clear is that we have to decrease. There are so many people incarcerated for minor marijuana offenses that we've done ourselves a disservice when you have child molesters running rampant, rapists running rampant, terrorists running rampant, uh, psychopaths running rampant, and we're filling our prison roles with people who have developed addiction issues or who have simply been uh, uh, indicted and, and charged with minor drug offenses who otherwise could be productive contributors to society. Right. And so I think that's a part of it, those decriminalizing marijuana. And I think also looking at our sentencing structure, so many people have been wow. sentenced beyond the crime. Right. But I'm, I'm going on and on. This is your show, dear brother. My apologies. But no, when I'm no, with friends, no. I get excited, you know? Oh, no, no. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. You know, I, I, I just want to uh, 
take a little pause because I know that your time is limited. So I want to make sure that that I'm able to share something with you. And mm-hmm. that is your um, you are part of an amazing legacy. And that is that your grandmother, hmm. uh, Congresswoman Julia Carson, uh, you know, w- was there. And then you when when she passed away, you you were elected to 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 take that position. I find that to be remarkable. Legacy is such an important thing. And she was a remarkable woman in so many ways. But even more was the connection that she had to the people of Indianapolis. And you are doing that very thing. I can't tell you how many times uh, our paths cross, whether it's at, unfortunately, it it oftentimes is at a social gathering in terms of a funeral or a memorial oftentimes. But um, but I also, uh, as a minister, I find myself reading acknowledgments at, at many, many funerals. And I am always um, pleased to see a, a note from Congressman Andre Carson's office. And that, so your presence and care and concern, it, it resonates very deeply. And it's very much in the tradition and the same feeling of, of your grandmother and how she was the go-to person and was all about the community and was well-respected and loved. And I'm honored to, to have called her a friend. Yes. So yep. uh, that, that, that work is very, very important. We talk about that sort of thing. My father is also was in law enforcement, my youngest sister, my dad mm. Bubba, from IMPD mm, for I love it. four years, man. I love it. I love it. Now that's a great legacy of service for real. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's so much common stuff, but I just want to make sure that you understand um, that your work is appreciated and loved. And just before I came on the show, mm-hmm. I got a note uh, on Facebook from a former deputy mayor of Indianapolis, John Hall. Wow, the legendary John Hall. John himself. Hall. Good and people John, right there, Doug. Absolutely. And this is what he says about you. Andre has lifted the bar extremely high for elected officials. He studies hard. He's sensitive to his constituents' needs. And like his grandmother, his staff is first class and smart, hard workers. Wow. That's, man, that, what a great honor. That, that, that's humbling, man. Wow. Thank you. You know, John is an educator also, man. So he wow, oh, yeah. knows that. <laughs> oh, wow, that means a lot. You, you, you know, Bill, as, as you know, we, we, have a, we have a great team and uh, we couldn't get the work done without a phenomenal team. And it, 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 it's such a blessing. And, you know, we don't always get it right. But, um, you know, having been raised by my grandmother <clears throat> and coming from a legacy of, you know, you watching your dad and your parents, um, she, she really raised me and, you know, she was very deliberate about me having my own mind and my own way. Uh, she would often challenge me uh, and we'd have these, we, these very fun but serious uh, and firm debates uh, about a plethora of issues. But she would always say at the end, she said, you know what, uh, I'll say this about you, you have your own mind. But one thing she impressed upon me was being in touch with, I mean, we, you know, we, we, we grew up in the middle of the hood Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, a lot of times our home was the go-to home and I'll never forget uh, one time my grandmother decided to take all the neighborhood kids, um, you know, many of them having come from uh, unfortunate circumstances um, to Kings Island, if we promised to clean up the alley. And 
some of the kids were so excited that they wore suits to go to King's Island. Wow. <laughs> because it was such wow. a big deal. And that's wow. just, a, and you know, when she became township trustee, she employed half of the neighborhood and so yeah. many people. And it was just that kind of sensitivity to people in need. You know, my, at one, one time um, I, I, I did a stint in, um, at a shelter with my, my mom and I, we, we stayed in the shelter, you know, before my grandmother took full control and, and, and raised me. Uh -huh. and I think those experiences kind of helped shape me to always be in touch with, with people, regardless of, you know, their race, their creed or their color, uh, just kind of having a sensitivity. And sometimes, you know, you, 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 a call may get dropped. So we created a system where whenever someone calls and leaves a message, we create a log because we try to meet everyone's needs, but uh, to hear that from John Hall means so much. And, you know, my grandmother, those are big shoes to fill. And Bill, I wear a 14, so there you go. <laughs> That's awesome, man. That's so awesome. Yeah, I mean, legacy is so important. And, you know, what I've been trying to do on this show, again, I've, I've had so much. It's It's been focused on racism because mm -hmm. when the George Floyd thing hit, it's like, first of all, there are lots of George Floyds. And so this was just yet another one. And um, a good friend of mine, Michael Smith, back in 1980, was the first George Floyd that I knew. Mm. And he was the first one, front page newspaper, um, uh, unarmed teenager, uh, botched uh, liquor store robbery, unarmed, running away from the police, shot and killed. So in 1980, mm -hmm. I became a pallbearer for my friend, Michael Smith. Wow. Um, so when I hear about George Floyd and we're talking about this now, uh, I was a child. This was my kindergarten. This was my buddy. This was, you know, I grew up wow. 32nd and Boulevard, man. This oh, is man, I, that's right in the mix. That's that, right in the mix. I'm right there, you know. So um, so those those experiences have uh, go a long way in shaping our sensitivity. And with this show, I have certainly tried to uh, adopt a, a, a personal mantra because my grandfather raved all the time and, and harped on being a good steward of the community. Mm. And so that is the idea. But I, I've sort of framed this around creativity, compassion, and connection. So very much th this idea of, of us sort of connecting in a meaningful way with one another. Mm -hmm. And so just as you were saying, regardless of you know color and, 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 and mm -hmm. any differences like that, it's so important that we that we go the extra mile mm -hmm. to, to reach out yeah. and, and, and make a real connection because at the end of the day, that's the only way we can lead back to our humanity and, and really get back to that. Because right now this us and them game is just about to wear everybody out. Talk and, to me. Talk you know? And but, so. But Brother Bill, can I ask you, I don't mean to cut you out. This is your platform. No, you got grandfather. it. Something resonated with me. What does that what, what what does that service look like to you? I know it's different for all of us, but in your mind, what does that commitment to public service look like for you, based on your your grandfather's objective and, and, and lens? Okay, what it looks like for me. I'm always pulling. I'm always pulling from folks. Oh no no no, that's good. That's good. So no, what it means to me is, uh, you know, I have I've focused a lot of my attention, uh, you know, career wise has been in the arts and entertainment. Okay. Uh -huh. So musician and, mm -hmm. you know, acting and all that sort of stuff. But what I recognized very early on was, uh, I'm, I'm biracial, you know, so uh -huh. the whole race issue and all that sort of stuff was, 
was considerably different in you know mid sixties and you know, oh, you know all that sort of thing. So you, a little different story you got it from all sides. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, yeah. You know, oftentimes I was the only you know uh, my, me and my twin sister were the only mixed kids in the whole school. So wow. so you know when you're looking left and right and you're going okay, you got to pick and choose. Well, I never really played that game, and so because what hmm. I discovered early on to answer your question was, um, when I played music. I noticed that people of all shades and, and perspectives would wind up falling into this space, this common space that we all occupied. So there's unity in that moment. Mm-hmm. I don't know your politics or anything else, but I do know that we have a mechanism and a means by which we are connecting. And mm-hmm. it is through a creative creative endeavor but we are actually creating an experience with one another that is completely organic wow and it is and it is it is it is always authentic it's always different every time you go out the Mm -hmm. same connection i realized from storytelling for for Mm -hmm. being an actor Mm -hmm. uh getting up and basically holding up a mirror for my community not just black white but i mean my community at large to the world to see and say, take a look at ourselves, because mm-hmm. every writer that wrote these stories and these performances have a point. Mm-hmm. There is a lesson there. There is something that is being conveyed saying, is this you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How can you do better? Which mm-hmm. character in this play is you? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and so so I have found for me between that and civic leadership roles, um, in the community and being engaged with arts and cultural things, again, sort of staying in my lane. But as you talk about that, I I just wanna be very clear that it extends well beyond sort of singing and dancing because it's all, it was always and always will be about that is my tool for making a connection by which then we can engage, whether it be in conversation and I can get to know who you are really Mm -hmm. because, that is the device, the tool, you know, a, a mechanic does it with a wrench. Mm-hmm. He's able to make a connection with people mm-hmm. because he can fix something. And mm-hmm. suddenly he has worth and value. I don't, I'm not looking mm-hmm. at his color, but my tire's flat and he's got me rolling again. Come on. And, and I'm able to, to place v- serious value in knowing that mm-hmm. this individual um, has shared a skill set or some enlightenment with me. Mm-hmm. And so you, you see what I mean? So I yeah. think that that is the way that we continue to engage one another. You know, um, for me, good steward in the community is holistic. It's it's beyond just the means of my in immediate family. It's my neighbors mm-hmm. and so on, which actually. It actually brings me to um, what prompted this story. I have a. I live over at 37th and around 37th and Cliff, right next to Golden Hill. Okay. Yeah. So I used to live there. Yeah. 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 So, so I, I, I live over there and there is a house right next door to me that is uh, vacant and uh, has been not occupied for about 15 years, apparently. Wow. And a young Mexican gentleman, about 30 years old, and his three little kids and his little wife. He had a vision and he said, I'm going to make this my home. Now, it's a it's a fixer up and a whole lot of fixing. But Mm -hmm. I want to I want what happened was he brought a dog over to sort of 
uh, he tied it up to the tree and it was there to watch over his tools and sort of, but he's living somewhere else. It's not habitable. It won't be that till next year. So he left this dog there. Well, I'm a dog lover. This dog and I bonded and he would come by every day and feed and water the dog and walk it, but essentially left the dog there. Now, if this, if this young man was white or black, mm-hmm. I would have reported him months ago. What happened was I was charged with the dilemma because I looked up and I said, if I make a call about a dog, about a neglect or something like that, it could open a can of worms because I don't know if he's legal. I I don't want to send his kids to cages. I don't want you because the climate we're in, I have no idea. Sure. I mean, what could happen? Sure. So anyway, what wound up happening was the dog about a week ago. Uh, tragically met an end. And I was caught with this very deep dilemma. Should I have done more? Should I have reported him? Mm-hmm. And it's because of the immigration issue mm-hmm. and, and how our climate is where we're just ready to pounce and jack people up. I'm not, I don't want to do anything horrible like that to his family, but yet it had a tragic, but it brought my attention to this idea of racism, immigration, and how do we, perform or, or behave as um, responsible citizens and neighbors to one another. You know, you know what I mean? So it, it, it was on my heart heavy. And so I'm grateful to you for yeah. being here. I've only got about a minute and I'm going to give it, give you yeah. a 30 seconds to give me a little love and I'm going to, we're going to wrap this thing up. Well, you know, that, that immigration piece is so important and, 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 you know, a uh, part of our project has been, uh, trying to bridge, trying to create bridges with different immigrant communities, be it African communities, with the Latino community, or uh, the Arab community, or even religious communities. You know, right. um, uh, in law enforcement, you know, I saw a lot of this where you had uh, a Latino dad who was trying to get to the factory in a Clinton County uh, or at Frankfurt, and right. you know, out of fear, worried about not being pulled over because he would get deported yeah it's it's, it's, it's similar to what you just a, talked about yeah it, it's it's a tough one well congressman carson it has been a pleasure having you with me i'm running out of time but we will do this again because there's some other things i definitely want to talk with you about i want to talk about that art piece because you're a bold artist i deal with hip-hop artists all the time all right <laughs> it takes a lot for you to speak up without fear in this environment where artists can't tour as you know and right. still be bold. So bless you on that. Bless we'll you. talk about the artistry later, brother. Bill. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for spending your afternoon right here with us at Bill Myers Inspires. Remember, we're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Inspired Choices Network. Remember to take time this week to take a breath and look within yourself and figure out how you can make a positive difference in this world. Spread the word. And we'll see you here next Friday. Have a wonderful week.